All right, I'm going to go on a little spiel now. Is that okay? First and foremost, um, you guys know my heart for this place. This is not just our church. It's our church family. And we view you guys as our family. And boy, what a family we have. Um, so incredibly thankful. Uh, Pat, there, there is such a thing as Pastor's Appreciation Month. Um, and... There, but there should be a Pastor's Wives Appreciation Month, I should tell you that as well. Because um, as right now, she's home with uh, some kids feeling under the weather, there is a special kind of grace that God gives for a pastor's wife. Uh, and I've got the best one. Um, and I'm really thankful uh, for all that, that my wife does to support um, our ministry together, how she loves so well, and, uh, and, and I want to say thank you uh, to you guys because I've never seen a church, and I think Justin will attest this and Miss Chelsea as well, I've never seen a church uh, protect the pastor's family time so well. And, and I know of a whole lot of pastors that don't get to watch their kids grow up, uh, and I'm getting to watch mine grow every single day. Um, and not only that, but, but together with you, like we get to do that together. And I think that is an incredible blessing to see how well you have loved my wife and you love my family, that my family knows that they have a church family that they absolutely adore and long to be here. That's a blessing from the Lord. It really is. I want to say another special thing, and that is to my brother in Christ, uh, my, my pastor and my fellow, um, my, my friend, Justin, who uh, is just such an incredible gift. Do you realize how intimidating it has to be to come and be the only other elder of a church of a guy who grew up in that church, right? And yet he loves you guys so well. I could not do what, what I do at all, and that is focusing on, on scripture and prayer without the way he ministers to this body and does all literally everything behind the scenes on a continual basis his task list if you ever want to look at it come see me and you would be blown away by how hard this guy continues to work and loves his church family what a gift he is and i I think i thank god for you every day brother i'm so glad we get to do this together uh and then there's there's two more one's not here today but of course i think actually miss andrew's probably in, in nursery i imagine but Zandra and Sheila, my goodness, uh, what these women have to put up with on a day-by-day basis uh, and still love us and serve this church so well. We're just blessed here, church. Uh, we really are. What a gift we've been given in each other. Um, and that's, that's, uh, we praise God for it. So that's about enough of that. Let's get to work, shall we? Let's get to the business of God's word. We're going to be, you know where, Second uh, Samuel. And, and I'll tell you... Um, this week and next week, and then we're going to take a long break, okay? Take a bit of a break starting in November. That's going to end uh, at the end of the year. So we're going to take a bit of a break from Second Samuel for a while and even uh, a little bit of a break from having to hear me every week uh, because we're going to have some other guys come in here and preach God's word uh, in a bit. Uh, so this week and next week we'll be in Second Samuel, and then the break is coming. So if you've got a little bit fatigued from this, I can certainly understand it. And yet, I've been so encouraged by the amount of people who have reached out and have said, why is it taking us so long to preach through a book in the Old Testament? We love how the Old Testament, in light of biblical theology, is shadowing and teaching us about the new. And that's, that's the reality, friends, is that the Old Testament really does help us understand Christ in the New 
Testament more. And so if you aren't doing anything on Wednesday nights, we are going to continue in our Old Testament survey class, which has been such a blessing and a gift. We pray you'll come back uh, this week as we look at Ruth and 1st, 2nd Samuel. Um, But in the meantime, we're in 2nd Samuel chapter 5 this morning, taking up verses 17 through 25. 2nd Samuel 5 verses 17 through 25. Simple title this morning, The Lord is King. Is he not? (laughs) He is King indeed. Amen. Would you stand if you're comfortable for the reading of God's Word with me? 2 Samuel chapter 5 verses 17 through 25. The precious and errant and fallible Word of God says this. Now, when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went to the stronghold. And the Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephraim. So David, catch this if it sounds familiar, inquired of the Lord saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up. For I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called the name of the place Baal Perazim, and they left their images there. And David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Ephraim. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord and said, You shall not go up, circle around behind them, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so, and as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gazir. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. You got it. Let's go and pray and thank the Lord for his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are our King. We thank you as our good and righteous King for sending us your Son. We thank you for his, his life, his death, his resurrection, for his ascension, and for his coronation. For the initiation of the kingdom of God upon the earth. Father, thank you for subjecting all things to him. Lord, we long for the day where they will be fully subjected. When the kingdom will be handed over to you and righteousness will reign for eternity. We ask for your help this morning. Lord, that we would just catch a greater glimpse of that reign. That we might know your son as the king of kings and the Lord of lords who is bringing that kingdom to bear in all the earth, that we might long as subjects of it to see its full consummation here on the earth in a way that transforms, Lord, the way way we think, the way we speak, the way we live in this world. Father, Lord, you know how weak and how forgetful we are. So without the work of your spirit, there's not going to be a transformation in our hearts. But by the work of your spirit and your word, Lord, your people are transformed more and more into the image of your Son. So help us now. We ask that we might sing, pray, and say more honestly that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
I'll be honest, originally I I kind of hoped to take chapter 5, verses 17 to the end of chapter 6 together. That actually is a more natural break for a break, if that's a a saying. But uh, then the reason is because they belong together. From 5.17 all the way to chapter 6 really belongs together. We're going to see that eventually. Uh, But these two passages simply remind us that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is a holy king. And of course, we're going to focus in on his kingship as we take together these nine verses. And the way I'd like to do this is to remind us again, if you haven't heard this before, we have before us a historical narrative. And, and just like all narratives, they introduce a conflict. They move forward towards some type of resolution. And there are antagonist and protagonist. Today, we see the antagonist in full force spread out in the valley of Rephraim. That is the Philistines. Those are our antagonists. Uh, And so then we'll take up the protagonist in this story, which we know is David, the Lord's anointed, and really a, a picture and type of the Lord himself. So let's take up the first part. And see the Philistines as the antagonist in this account of the historical narrative. The antagonist, the Philistines. The consummate enemy of God. If you aren't familiar with some of those terms that's in that point, particularly antagonist, I'm using it in the way a literary story would, right? If you've read literature in any way, shape, or form, you would notice that there is a person, not just who antagonizes, but a person who plays the enemy of the hero of the story or the protagonist, the main character of the story. In our account, right here and right now, in all the thread of biblical redemptive history, it is the Philistines. They are the antagonists, the seed of the serpent, if you know your your history. They are the representative and consummate enemy of the Lord and of God's people. By the term consummate, I mean the classic constant or chief enemy of Israel at this point in redemptive history. So really, you can think of it this way. This will probably help you see... Uh, how they relate. The Philistines are to Israel in the book of Samuel what Egypt is to Israel in the book of Exodus. Right, great. So they're not just another enemy. They are the enemy. And we've seen this in several obvious ways. First, the Philistines, they are explicitly and intentionally mentioned as early as Genesis chapter 10 in the table of nations. And they're, they're actually mentioned in the way they're mentioned as a little bit of an aside. That is who the Philistines come from following in the line of hand. That's what it says. This is who the Philistines come from. So they're not just another enemy. They are the enemy. Because they're brought up that way, because they are the consummate enemy of the people of Israel. They are the bad guys in the story, to make it a little simpler. Second, not only are they mentioned as far back as Genesis 10, they arise as the greatest Israelite enemy in the book of Judges, which, which if you know, really precedes Samuel. Samson begins to free Israel from the Philistines through his life, and actually even more so through his death. But the narrative, even at that point, begs for a greater Samson to come and finish the job. And, and friends, that's what we take up this morning. The Philistines become the primary enemy to the people of God. And up to this point, they have been rather effective in their campaigns against the Israelites. In fact, 
The last time we, we made mention of the Philistines, they were routing Saul, Saul's sons, and the Israelites back at the end of 1 Samuel. In fact, they killed Saul, didn't they? Wasn't the Amalekite? Remember that. It was the narrative tells us the Philistines is. It, it's now those Philistines who come now, and they come because they've heard there's a new king in town. They come, the text doesn't tell us this, but we're right to imply it. They come to put that king to death, just like they did the last. Now, it's worth noting how fearless they are, by the way, as they just come in and they spread out in the land. This is relevant because this is a far cry from the response of the nations when God was, was led by the, when, when, when the nations were led by God. When God was at the forefront, God was not silent, God was leading the nations, there's a different way in which the nations react and respond to God. For instance, in Genesis chapter 35, verse 5, we looked at this a couple weeks ago in our Sunday school class. You have Jacob and his children, they're leaving the area of Shechem after Levi and Simeon put the town to death following the assault of Dinah, their sister. And so Jacob's response to that is fear. What are these cities going to do? You've made me a stench in their nostrils. And, and the Lord calls him to a different place. And as they move from the area of Shechem uh, to the place the Lord called them, we read this in Genesis 35. We read, and they journeyed, and get this, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So picture that to the Philistines just coming upon the land and spreading out. Ready to do war. There's a difference in the mindset of the fear of God. Don't you see that? Exodus 15, 16. After Moses brought, out of Egypt, brought Israel out of Egypt. After he crossed the Red Sea. He sings a song. He writes a little ditty. And he sings it. It goes like this in Exodus 15. It says, listen. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Till your people pass over, O Lord. Till the people pass over whom you have purchased. So you get this picture of, of the Lord marching in Israel's midst and, and the nations being aware that this is no ordinary group of people. This is God's people and the response to that knowledge is they are as still as stone. They are struck still by fear. Their hearts melt within them. And that song actually ends with the Lord will reign forever and ever. Why, why are the nations scared? Why do we see this take place in Genesis and Exodus? Because Israel's king is Yahweh. That's why they're scared. They're not scared of the nation of Israel itself. They're scared of that nation's God because of who he is. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 25 tells us, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble, tremble and be in anguish because of you. And then we even see when they enter the promised land. Listen, this is Rahab's response in the book of Joshua. Listen to what Rahab says. The reputation of Israel and their God is here in Joshua 2, verses 9 through 10. Rahab said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land. That the terror of you has fallen on us. And that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard... <laughs> This is a far cry from the Philistines just walking on in, coming in and spreading out in the land with no fear. No dread of Israel. 
This same motif of the fear of God among the enemies of God's people is actually picked up in the beginning of 1 Samuel in chapter 4. The Philistines defeat the Israelites in battle and the Israelites are stunned. They're like, what happened? Why did the Lord allow the Philistines to defeat us? But then they go on to devise a plan to do what's right in their own eyes and make sure that they're victorious next time. So what they do is they grab the Ark of the Covenant uh, and Ark of the Lord and they bring it into an unclean camp. They do it, by the way, by the hands of two cursed and wicked priests. And when the ark is brought into Israel's camp, there is this great shout that goes into all the land and the Philistines are scared. Of course, you would think rightly so, right? But but they don't understand that, that the hand of the Lord is actually against Israel in this instance because of their sin. They've not feared the Lord. And they should. The instance of fear is very different from the others I mentioned in a fundamental way. The fear of the Lord among the nations, in the other instances, they're connected to the knowledge of God and the holiness of his people. But, but the fear of the Philistines is very different back in 1 Samuel 4. See, because there is always this connection between the Lord in the midst of his people and therefore the people in right relationship with their Lord and that translating into the fear of the nations. As his people walk in their way, his ways, as they demonstrate they have a true knowledge of God, the people see that the Lord is in Israel's midst and they have fear. Likewise, the promise of the dread that will fall upon the nations that we just read in Deuteronomy 2 from Moses, it's connected to that report that the nations will hear. They'll know what the Lord has done. They'll know who he is. They will know the promises of the Lord and see him in their midst. They will hear of the Lord's redemptive work, his ongoing presence and protection. And for that, their hearts will melt in fear before this great God. But you see, at this point in the narrative, we're we're not even surprised that the enemy of God musters its forces against the Lord and his anointed. Are we? We've seen Philistines get so comfortable in attacking the Lord and not having fear of them that it doesn't surprise us at all because we know the wickedness of Israel. But we should be surprised. These Philistines, these enemies of God, come into the land and just take camp, march on. They're able to spread out. If the Lord's anointed has to flee to the stronghold, then friends, there's something terribly wrong in the promised land. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. So get the whole story from a wide-angle lens. How has it come to this? Well, we know Israel, way back in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, rejected her king. We are witnessing the after-effects at that. And yet, now, in 2 Samuel 5, we've come to a turning point. Now, we see that David has been anointed king. And now that we've seen the antagonist of the story, let's look at the protagonist of the story. The protagonist is David, a man after God's own heart. David, a man after God's own heart. We saw last week that this is the resolution, but the problem is the Philistines didn't get the memo. (laughs) No one told them that the real deal had now been anointed. All they think is, well, here's another Saul. But there's a problem. David is the Lord's anointed. And we even see that by his very actions in the text, don't we? The new king does what? 
He flees to a stronghold and seeks the face of his God. Or we could put it more precisely, David seeks the true king. David actually recognizes that he's king with a little K and he needs to seek the king with the big K. This is the man after God's own heart and this is where he's at his best. Isn't this true? When we see the story of David, this is David at his best inquiring of the Lord. David at his best as king is inquiring of the Lord. Here's why I think we need to see this, because I think we tend to think of that expression we hear of David. We know that David is what? He's a man after God's own heart. And we, we hear that and we see that as some type of inherent quality or characteristic in David himself. As if God just scanned the earth and he found a man that was good and so he called forth David. That's not the case at all. When, when we're tempted to think about David more than David's God, it's a big mistake. The man after God's own heart is the man that acknowledges his complete and utter dependence upon his God. The man after God's own heart is the man who values supremely the word of his Lord. The man after God's own heart is not the man after God's own heart because of what he is inherently, but because of who he trusts in. David knows his God is the only true and living God. The DNA of the man who is after God's own heart is defined by his dependent trust that produces faithful obedience. And that's what David demonstrates here, is it not? We read, so David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? It really is, and I have to mention this, it's a lot like Moses' response at Mount Sinai. If you remember that story, you remember the golden calf story, right? Israel made a golden calf, they started worshiping it, and Aaron the priest helped everyone out. The Lord's rightly upset about that. So Moses goes and he intercedes on their behalf. He appeals to God's character and God's promises, and the Lord says, listen, I'm not going to destroy them, but, but you guys just go on. I'm going to send my messenger before you, but I can't go because I will consume them. What does Moses say? Okay, God, that, that sounds like a good deal. That's reasonable, right? You're not going to kill us all even though we deserve it. So you won't be with us? Oh, wait, okay, that's, that's fine. You know, oh, well, we still get the promised land, right? No, he doesn't say that. What does he say? Lord, if you don't go, I don't go. How can we go without you? In other words, what is the point if God is not with us? See, it's the same mistake that the Israelites make after they refuse to trust the Lord and take the promised land. If you know that story in Numbers, we covered it just briefly in our survey class. It is a survey class after all. But they rebelled against the Lord and the Lord finally says, okay, you're not going in. Your children that you're so concerned about and afraid for, they're the ones that are actually going to inherit the land. But then Israel says, okay, God, you're right. We're wrong. We'll go take the land. But God says, don't do that. I'm not with you. But they go anyways. And what happens? They're defeated before their enemies. Missing the point. Constantly given to the gift and miss the fact that the gift is actually the giver. 
you don't have right relationship with God, it doesn't matter how many of the gifts you enjoy, you have missed the point. You have missed the joy. You have missed the opportunity to know unyielding rest and satisfaction that only comes from the knowledge of God. See, David, in a small way, he demonstrates that. The Philistines come. He retreats and says, do I go or not, Lord? Because it's your show. Stop me if you've heard it before. The battle belongs to the Lord. Victory depends upon dependence. I want you to hear that. Victory depends upon dependence. If you will not stand by faith, you will not stand at all. So at the end of the day, the difference, listen, it's not simply the moral compass of David. We've seen that already. It's not just that David was some good guy, Saul's not. It is only because David knows the Lord. He only does what is right because he knows God and he knows God's faithfulness. He's tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That's the different maker, right? That is why David is a man after God's own heart because he knows God's heart. He knows his Lord is the Lord of hosts and the God of the armies of Israel. David, as a newly anointed king of Israel, again demonstrates this really well right here. Note this, David doesn't just devise a strategy and take matters into his own hands. David appeals to the true king. In fact, we could say it this way. David knows who is in charge and acts like it. So two different things, right? We've seen people who don't know who's in charge and just act like they do. We've seen people who know who knows uh, who's in charge but don't act like it. David does both here. He knows who's in charge and he acts like it. Listen, this is what the Bible teaches from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's very simple. God is king. And hear me, maybe it's just me. But I think Christianity, too much Christianity, primarily in the West, is weak and even bankrupt because we may say this, but we don't believe it. We really don't believe that God is king. The Old Testament clearly teaches that the Lord is king, not just in Israel, but he's king of the whole world. It's his. It exists by the word of his power. And hear me, the Lord is patient, we know that, but do not confuse that with him ceasing to be king. Those are not contrary. The Lord is kind, he's benevolent, but this in no way diminishes his sovereignty. He still reigns all the time and everywhere. Church, let me be honest. We need a big old dose of a reality check, particularly now in this time. Our God is the Lord of heavens and earth yesterday, today, and forever. He is neither inept or unable to bring about completion of the salvation that he's initiated for his people. He is neither slow as the world counts slowness, nor unwilling to judge the world in righteousness. It is coming. What we need to feed our fear and anxiety with is a daily dose of the reality of that truth. Your God is in the heavens and the earth is his footstool. It means he rests his feet here. 
He is a God who draws near into the very tent of David and says, here's the plan. Guys, do you know how intimate that strategy is? (laughs) Hear me, listen, do you think God needed a strategy to defeat the Philistines? Please tell me you know the answer is no. So why communicate it as a strategy? Because he's not just a transcendent God. He's an imminent God. He actually draws nearer to his people and allows his people to draw near to him. So the first battle he just gives to him. But the second battle he says, David, this time go out to the back. I'm going to lead out the host of heavens. And and when you hear us marching in the treetops, go ahead and advance because I'm going to strike them. I'm with you. I'm with you, the transcendent king of the universe who spoke his creation into existence by the word of his power draws near to you and abides in you by his spirit. In fact, he's present in this very room. And here's the test to see if you really understand what that means, right? That's just, that's just Christian verbiage. We say that God is with us. He's dwelling with us. Here's the test you really understood what that means. You would either be, when you hear that God is in this room and dwelling among us, you would either be overwhelmed by joy and gratitude for Jesus Christ, or you would be terrified that God is in our midst. One or the other, which is it? When you hear that, that God is with us, those are the only two options if you truly understand what that means. He is. It's a beautiful thing. Again, Guys, we need to take a big old dose of reality check each and every day. These last two years, this virus, hear me, it wasn't an accident. It didn't catch God unaware. Did it? What is he doing in the midst of it? I I, I don't know, but, but I know he's at work in the midst of it. Right? I, I know he's sovereign over it. Is that your God? Because that's the God of the scriptures. And I'm, af- I'm afraid, friends, we're just like those wicked kings often where we either know this and don't act like it. Or we're acting like it, but we really don't know it. W- what is it? That's the God of the scriptures. That's who God reveals himself to be. Friends, if you want to fear something, fear him. Listen, the moral meltdown of our country, does that concern you? Listen, words are important. It should disturb you. But does it concern you? Does it cause anxiety and fear in you? Who is your God? Let me introduce you to the God of the Bible, the God who is sovereign over mankind. Not just in the Old Testament, by the way, but in the New as well. According to Paul, he's the one who actually places every single person exactly where he wants to put them in the time he wants to put them so that they all might call out to him. Though none do apart from his sovereign intervention. Church family, this is your God. Violence, division, chaos, hatred everywhere, even in our own hearts. None of that is greater than the God who reigns over all of it. Our Lord reigns. Our Lord is king. His word is law. And listen, you and I need to repent and recognize that we were, some of us in this room probably still are, we were rebels against a holy God that will hold you accountable. And yet we're scared of the world? Really? 
Yahweh holds the nations in derision and laughs at the enemies of his anointed. In fact, that's pretty much what he does right here in chapter 5, isn't it? They had to put the Philistines to shame. Think about it. They came in acting like they owned a place, surrounded everywhere with this strategy. And what does God decide to do? Hey, when you hear me in the trees, I'm going to take them out. That's it. That's what he does to the enemies that are his. That's pretty much exactly what he does. The king is willing and able to save. And we see him doing this in this very text. The king breaks through the Philistines like a flood. So again, there are two battles recorded here, and they're both important battles for slightly different reasons. The first battle, again, it's not even really reported. Does that remind you of anything? We noticed that in regards to the taking of Jerusalem too, didn't we, last week? Why? Because friends, the battle itself is not really as important as the one who's fighting it. It's ultimately not David, it's David's Lord. The battle belongs to him. All we get is the Lord's assurance that he will give them into his hand and testimony, and David's testimony was that he is true. That's true. Imagine that. But the language here actually is important itself. Because David uses that flood imagery, doesn't he? To describe the victory. He says, the Lord broke through the enemy like a flood. As in the days of Noah... The Lord defeated his enemies with a flood. So in the days of David, the Lord overwhelmed the enemy of his people and brought them safely through. Or as in the days of Moses, when God brought his people out of the land of Egypt by flooding Pharaoh's army. So the Lord is doing in the days of David. This is just like our God. He hasn't changed. He hasn't stopped saving. He's always been faithful to rescue his people. The Lord has always been king. You have to remember, remember that the book of Samuel, it's dealing with a problem. And and hear me, even though they are the antagonists of the story, the problem is not the enemy of God's people. The Philistines aren't the problem in 1st and 2nd Samuel. The problem is the people. (laughs) That's the problem. The problem of 1st and 2nd Samuel is the people of God. Can I ask you? What do you think your problem is? Listen, I'm going to be really clear. Here's your problem. Your problem is if God removed his hand of grace upon your heart for a single moment, a single second, you would run back to worship your sin in an instant. That's your problem. Are you okay with that level of dependence upon a God who is able and willing to save? I hope you are. See, the problem clearly as we follow the narrative, it's always been the people forgetting that their God is king over the universe. Doubting that he reigns supreme over all things. They don't really know their Lord. They're still convinced that if they just had the right earthly advantage... Maybe the right king, maybe the right numbers, maybe more chariots, the right strategy. Then they could attain peace and rest in the land. So they ask for a king like the nations. And here's what they do and here's what we do. They, in essence, flee their rock and refuge to hide in a cardboard box. Church, that's what we do constantly. Don't you see that? What does God promise He promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He promises that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love he has for us in his son, Christ Jesus. 
He promises that not even death will come between us and his love. So what do we have to fear? We're still living in so much fear. I'll tell you why. It's because we don't believe our God. And I mean, what I mean by that is, is our faith is weak. My faith is weak. We struggle to believe that God truly is enough, that his spiritual blessing is enough, that these troubles we're facing right now, they are but light and momentary. We know the word says that. And listen, we remember to tell others the word says that when we see them struggling. But what about our own fear and struggles? What about our temptation to abandon our refuge and our rock and take up a cardboard box because it's expedient? See, the problem is I don't necessarily always feel my rock and refuge. I don't see it. But most of my cardboard boxes, I know exactly what they look like. I know exactly where to find them and and they comfort me for a moment. But they do not bring me the peace and rest that my heart so desires. There's only one place you're going to find rest, saint. There's only one place that you'll find peace, and it's not in your cardboard box. Flee to Christ. Stop wandering away from your shepherd. Why should you squander this life of fear and anxiety when he offers you peace and rest that is in Christ right now? The same power that raised him from the dead is at work in you if you are truly his child. So what if your world falls apart? So what? Here's the reality. Listen, hear, me, hear my heart here. Here's the reality. We are so foolish that we often pray the Lord would spare us from all sorts of trials, even if it cost us growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't we? Right? That's utter foolishness. It's a testimony really to how little we know our God. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be praying that the Lord would bring you whatever it takes to grow you in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm good. You guys really don't have to pray that for me at all, actually. No, I say that tongue in cheek. Because look, those are, listen, those are hard prayers to pray, aren't they? It's difficult prayers to pray. But what if we had a church that prayed them? And what if we prayed them because we believed that it was actually, hear me, actually better to suffer in this life following our precious Savior than to have an easy path? What if what God says is true? Think about it, saints. What is the gospel? What, what is the gospel? It's incredible as a Christian, as a pastor, just the things that you assume at times. Most of us would assume that we understand the gospel, right? But what is the gospel? According to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, he proclaims the gospel in the Areopagus there in, in verses 30 and 31. And listen to what he says. He says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. 
The gospel is that the same Lord who led the host of heavens out against the Philistines on the top of those mulberry trees actually in the fullness of time took on flesh and blood. The same God through which the universe was created by the word of his power is the same one who clothed himself in our weakness that he might fulfill all righteousness on our behalf, including the righteous sacrifice that atones for the sins of all God's people. How do we know? Paul says in Acts 17, he has given us assurance. How? By raising him from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father and even now rules over all things. That's our king. Here's the reality, folks, and hear this. The good news is not that you've been freed from all the kingdoms. The good news is that you've been transferred from one kingdom to another kingdom. From one reign to another reign. So that if you know that your king is for you and with you, you know that you have nothing to fear. Nothing. And church, that's really good news. In conclusion... In 2 Samuel 5, 17-25, we are presented with the antagonist of the story, that is the consummate enemy of God in that point of redemptive history. We're also presented with this type, this foreshadowing, the protagonist in the story, preparing the way and pointing us toward that final protagonist in which the whole story is really about, Christ Jesus, our Lord and true King. He brings about the kingdom of God in such a way now that the enemies of God's people are utterly defeated, and the people of God are completely saved. Here's the challenge. It sounds simple, but it's not. Now, let's live like that's true. Let's live in light of that truth. Listen, this really is a simple sermon, isn't it? It's, the sermon is, God is king. That, that's it. But, but that simple statement has so much practical application for how you live your day-to-day life, does it not? It ought to. Friends, the encouragement is, let's stay on our rock, in our refuge, and abandon these cardboard boxes in our lives that are utterly, utterly worthless. Would you stand as we close together?